0: The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management.
3: I love my dog as much as I love you. But you may think my dog will always come through.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Urban Zoo. My name is Bill McBain with co-host Dr. Tiffany Renick, Medical Director at the Credit Valley Animal Hospital in Streetsville, Mississauga. It's a busy and fascinating show today. We have Ontario NDP Agriculture Critic and Deputy Leader John Vantoff here to talk about the vanishing resource, Ontario Farmland. In our next segment, Diane Bergeron of the Canadian National Institute for the Blind's Guide Dog Program. And in our breed slash animal of the week section, that mystical evocative summer icon, the loon. It's a busy show. Good to have you with us here on the Urban Zoo. My name's Bill McBain with Dr. Tiffany Rennick. We'll be back after these messages with John Van Toff, agriculture critic for the Ontario NEP and their loss of irreplaceable Ontario farmland. Here on News Talk, Saga 960 AM, your region, your voice. Back soon.
3: And that he knows he'll get So I love my dog as much as I love you You make a fame My dog will always come through
0: Stream us live at saga 960 ca
3: I love my dog as much as I love for you for you may fa my dog will always come through.
1: Welcome back to the Urban Zoo. I'm Bill McBain with co-host Dr. Tiffany Rennick, and it is my good fortune to welcome Ontario NDP Agriculture Critic and Deputy Leader John Vantoff, MPP for Temiskaming Cochrane. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Bill. Nice to see you again. We've been talking lately about uh, Highway 413 and the damage that's going to have this radio show actually originates in Peel region okay. and it will have profound impact on the region, but not just here. Uh, right across the province. And I wanted to talk to you today to follow up on a comment that was made by our earlier guests on a previous episode, and that was their reference to a CBC article and a an Ontario Federation of Agriculture report that between 1996 and 2016, Ontario was losing 175 acres of farmland per day in the province. Now we have this Highway 413 on the horizon, ready to wipe out 2000 odd acres for the highway construction itself, many, many, many more with the yep. broader development this is unsustainable. So what can we do about this, John? What what What's the future hold if we don't do something? And what can we do more positively? We,
2: we can't continue at this pace, At this pace, uh, losing farmland at this pace. I think the 175 acres a day is uh, still valid, probably more than that. Anyone who's driven through uh, the Highway 400, 401 corridor, you've been you can see every day there's less farmland. What, 413, if it goes ahead, you get the 2,000 acres it will lose with the, the construction. But we all know a highway is like, like field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Of course. And you are going to lose. You Basically, at, at the end of the day, between 413 in Toronto and north of 413 is going to be filled. And that is unsustainable.
1: I understand a lot of that land has already been sold and snapped up. Uh, developers and speculators have been working hard on this. Uh, people
2: have an inside track, yeah.
1: I'm glad you mentioned this because there's more than a little suggestion that many of the people involved in this investment are very well connected to the, to the Conservative Party of Ontario and to the Premier.
2: Yeah, that has been brought up. There has been articles in the media and and there is also much evidence that actually the 413 isn't actually the answer to the issues of congestion and not just losing farmland, but there's all other kinds of things that we could do that wouldn't endanger the farmland and would still improve the economy and
1: allow for more housing. I believe that's absolutely correct for the 21st century. This is a very 1950s approach to urban development. From a construction
2: developer point of view, it's easy, right? Like prime farmland is also prime place to build. You know, quick of construction, course. good profit, good, you know, and and it's and it's the 1950s dream. You know, the the house on a big lot, but you know what? That's not the the dream now. The dream now is to protect What we have, Ontario is blessed with some of the best farmland in the world, Yes, and it's our job to protect it. It's our job also to develop housing strategies and travel strategies, transportation strategies that don't endanger that, endanger our future.
1: Europe has faced this problem for for a long, long time, and they've been able to intensify and to separate agricultural land from urban land very successfully over the years. Why are we not taking more lessons from elsewhere in the world?
2: I, I think... My opinion is because we have traditionally been, for lack of a better word, endowed with so many resources. We have so much land. We have, and we've always taken, as a society, the easy approach. But we're coming to the point with farmland that, you know, and, and now we're also coming through COVID. We've also come to the realization that you can't just rely on other countries for everything you need and you can't just rely on other countries for food and we we've been far too lackadaisical with that farmland needs to be treated as the precious resource it is not just another plot to build on
1: we have a very big country but we don't have a country with endless amounts of quality soil no you don't have to travel very far north before it's gone and you're you're looking at shield and and it takes centuries to develop a good soil base
2: And, and we, one thing about our, so it southwestern Ontario, southern Ontario, not only does it have good soil, but it has some of the most stable climatic conditions in the world. And now that we're coming into, even the most stalwart opponents aren't denying global warming anymore, climate change and having having a stable climate to grow crops in and to grow food in is incredibly important. And we have that. It's more stable than many other places. As the world warms, there's going to be a lot of places in the States that aren't going to be like that. And we are going to be like that. And yet we are still, our government is still thinking about paving over that resource. It's it's incredibly short-sighted.
1: Is this all about money, John? Is this about greed?
2: What isn't? <laughs> <laughs> Fair
3: answer. Fair answer.
1: I mean, there, there are checks and balances built into our system historically. There are conservation authorities, there are, there's legislation of one sort or another, there's ministries yeah. dedicated to the protection of land and resources of all sorts and wildlife. But in recent years, we've seen a, an easy overriding yeah. of those things through minister zoning orders. Years ago yeah. in the North, of course, we saw ministerial exemptions on yeah. take wood orders mm-hmm. in the forest. What is the value of having these systems so, if they're simply and- overridden by a majority government?
2: And even when we had, and we do have, we have, we had a strong environmental assessment system, a strong planning system, and and even when we had those, we were losing 175 acres a day, and that's not enough for that's this right. for this government. So this government has overrode that with ministerial zoning orders and many other tools. What they're doing, and it, it's just, it's never enough for this and it's just it's incredibly incredibly short-sighted and I don't think people realize how and maybe because I am a farmer by trade but when you when you drive down the highway and you know I can see the fields disappearing
1: Yes. Well, and now
2: I... we're going to and we're going to create another major highway and we're going to watch them disappear again. And people have to realize that that's not just a farmer's field disappearing, that's your food security disappearing. And yes. now as we see food prices rise, imagine if all of a sudden we are totally dependent or slowly totally dependent on other
1: countries for our food. When I moved to this area in 1996, I could almost walk north of the 401 and get away from urban development. Now it's a 20 minute drive or, or longer. Farmland has disappeared, appeared at a staggering rate. There has not been particular intensification in urban areas in Peel region or in York or in Halton. Nope. And it's it's highly problematic. And we protected the green melt and now it's open to development through this project. Yeah. You have a particularly valuable insight and experience in that you were part of the battle against the Adams mine and putting Toronto's garbage into Northern Ontario, you were a dairy farmer in the clay belt, in the little clay belt, and your fight and those of everyone who worked with you was to protect the water quality. So you've been down and you've fought another conservative government and another set of investors, hell bent on on getting getting that project done, but you won. It was a long process, a big fight, but you won. What are the lessons for, for the folks taking this on here?
2: The lessons that we learned is a fight like that, you have to you have to look at the bigger picture and you have to unite everyone, not just, you know. So we had so traditionally farmers and environmentalists aren't seen as friends in some issues, or That's farmers right. and environmental activists, although we share the same passions, we're not seen as friends. But we we put down our swords on the little issues and we concentrated on the one that was threatening us all. That's what we need to do here, too.
1: Well said. It was a remarkable coalition of farmers, of environmentalists, of, of longtime residents, of the region, of indigenous, yep. the indigenous people locally, yep. of French, of English, of communities that didn't have a history of talking to each other came together. It Townsend was a remarkable part of our history. Other. Yeah, didn't Townsend talk to each other. Didn't
2: talk to each other. Fought side by side on that battle, and have since
1: we we have become much more united in everything we do. It's a wonderful story, and it, it it absolutely is. John, how is it going in the legislature with this issue? What what are the response to from Minister Clark? What's the response from uh, Minister Clark? The has
2: been surprisingly silent on. Uh, so they took a lot of heat over MZOs, and then they went silent. Minister Mulroney, the Minister of Transportation, is adamant that the 413 is going to be built, and from our side, we are adamant that it that it shouldn't be. And obviously, uh, the Premier, uh, judging by the fall economic statement, the Premier has ignoring almost all the other major issues that are facing this province, and his claim to get reelected is going to be built the 413.
1: Wow. All in. And, and, all in. And
2: that's, oh, he's all in. He's all in. He's looking at it from a, a vote perspective and he thinks that the people are, you know, are all in on the 413. And, you know, it's our job to make, and I think a majority of people already understand this, but make understand the gravity of the situation when you, just from my perspective, keep paving over the place you grow your food. You know there's there's a few things there's a few things that they don't make anymore and one of them is farmland.
3: Lucky Land Casino
2: asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
3: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Ha ha in my dentist's office.
1: Well if I could close it's
2: this may not make a lot but often when I look at the 413 it makes me it makes me think of Easter Island and how they kept building statues until there was none one left. And you know we could do the same thing here. We can keep paving over everything until there's no place left for our to grow our own food and one big parking we, lot yeah And we are we are technologically capable to do that. Are we smart enough
1: not to? Well, that's the whole hot climate crisis. There's, there's a big meeting and a lot of uh, activity in Glasgow right now. And people are, are asking themselves, are we capable of stopping? This issue is not new. Scientists have, have known and warned for many, many decades that this is a problem. And yet now we're looking to make last minute changes. And here in Ontario, we have a government absolutely oblivious to the fact that yep. change needs to happen. Can't all be about money because that short term. And farmland and the need he to isn't. grow food isn't. No, and neither are our kids. So. And neither are our kids. Here, here. I wish you uh, all the best in fighting the good fight, John. You're you're doing important work. Right. Uh, right. An honor and a pleasure to have you here on the Urban Zoo. Yep. You're always yep. welcome. Thank you again, John. A pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Be well, my friend. Bye-bye. Talk bye to bye you bye. later. We've been talking to John Vanthoff, Deputy Leader and Agriculture Critic for the Ontario NDP MPP for Temiskaming Cochrane, and we've been talking about Ontario's disappearing farmland. My name's Bill McBain with co-host Dr. Tiffany Rennick. We'll be back with Diane Bergeron, head of the Canadian National Institute for the Blind's Guide Dog Program here on the Urban Zoo on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Your region, your voice. Back soon.
3: And that he knows he'll get. So I love my dog as much as I love you. My dog will always come through.
0: No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960am.ca
3: I love my dog as much as I love for you. For you, me. My, dog will always come through.
1: My name is Bill McBain with, with co-host Dr. Tiffany Rennick. Welcome to the, the Urban zoo. zoo. I'm speaking to Diane Bergeron, president of CNIB Guide Dogs, Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Good to have you with us this morning, Diane.
4: Nice to be here.
1: Now, the reason I called. The reason we wanted you on the show was I came across appeals for raising money for more guide dogs. Apparently you have a shortage of guide dogs coming over the pandemic. Tell me about the program and and why the need is there.
4: Sure. CNIB, of course, has been around for more than 100 years. Uh, Mm -hmm. We celebrated our 100th birthday a couple of years ago, but we decided to begin a guide dog program uh, the CNIGB guide dog program we started in 2017 with two puppies we brought over from a breeder who breeds specifically for the the temperament and and the health and the the genetics that is required for this for this work and we brought them from Australia and Ooh. we started with two they, they graduated in 2018. So that was our first set of dogs that went out. And we have since then had 133 dogs enter into the program. Some of them are currently in puppy raising, some of them are in training. We have 42 currently dogs working as guide dogs, which is uh, one of our key areas. We also have a buddy dog program, we call it. It's, it's working with youth who are uh, children or youth who are blind or partially sighted we match them up with the dog to help them gain some understanding and responsibility when it comes to to dogs to prepare them for potentially their own guide dog in the future oh, good. we have 18 of those out and then we have six ambassador dogs which are dogs that are out there with volunteers uh, promoting the program so we've come a long way since since those first two dogs in 2017 But what we found was during the border closures, any of the Canadians who are blind or partially sighted that that would go to the United States to get their dogs suddenly couldn't get across the border. And so a lot of people that were either looking for their first dog or or, uh, more so people who were looking for successor dogs because of dogs retiring or, or getting ill or whatever the case may be they had no way to go and get their dogs. So we started seeing a significant increase in our application uh, process. In fact, for a little while, we, it, it jumped up more than 300%. Um, 300%. Last year.
1: Wow. So yeah, this is all fairly recent, uh, the, but guide dogs have been ar- around in Canada for a long, long time. It was the major source oh, of.
4: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So
4: yeah, was yeah.
1: Major source of dogs in the past uh, across the border.
4: Um, I would say a significant number. There's four other accredited programs in Canada that also provide dogs to people who are blind or partially sighted, but there was, there was for, you know, for various reasons, individuals decided to go to the States. There's, there's a lot more schools in the United States yes. due to their population. So availability at the, you know, at certain times would be, you know, potentially faster in the States, or maybe they, you know, there's a lovely school in California. Maybe people just wanted to go for the weather. I'm not sure, (laughs) but uh, a lot of people did go to the United States to get their dogs. And, and so we wanted to make sure that there was enough dogs and, and CNIB had planned on, you know, we had always planned on building our program up and, and, you know, training more people, more dogs We had a lovely strategy. It was a great, lovely Business plan we had set out and it would gradually expand the program and then of course the uh, border closures hit and as soon as that happened we kind of looked at it and said look at the increase in applications we're getting this is clearly an issue for us and we needed to either you know stay the course and not be able to provide as many dogs or we needed to hit it head on and do what we could. So that's what we decided to do. We hit it head on and we uh, did everything that we could to get dogs uh, dogs out there as quickly as possible to people who needed them. We had several partnerships going. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting time for us to get dogs into the, the hands of people who need them. But of course our demand went up and due to travel restrictions, our supply went down because we couldn't get our dogs from Australia. And so we had to start getting dogs wherever we could. So there's, there's, you know, the the there's a balance, right? There's always a supply demand balance in any in any business, but in this That's particular right. business, Mother Nature takes uh, a, a a great hold on how we supply our programs. So,
1: well, I appreciate the effort you've made to adapt to uh, the crisis, to take to meet this need head on, and to start to address it. So everyone, I you know, I talked to Catherine in, in your office the other day, mm-hmm. and I know you do. How many of your staff raise puppies?
4: Wow. <laughs> I knew you'd ask me a question I couldn't answer. I'm not sure how many of it. You know, there's, there's several. We've got lots of volunteers, obviously. Yeah. We have puppy schemes in Calgary, in Regina, in Winnipeg, various places in Ontario and in Halifax and we're building that out even more as we get puppies in but we do have several of our staff that also are puppy raisers like Catherine and I have to tell you I I, as I said when you and I started chatting before the recording I just got a a puppy not as a as a guide dog as a pet uh, for my husband and We've had them a week and I'm exhausted. So how these people do this as puppy (laughs) raisers while working at the job, I have no idea, but God bless them all because without them, we wouldn't have the great dogs that we have uh, as guide dog handlers. Oh yeah. It's
1: a real joy though. I mean, yes, it's puppies and toddlers, but you're, you're raising, (laughs) they're all, they're very similar and you're uh, you're raising them to be great uh, adults. So it's, it's well worth the journey and fun along the way if tiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, no question. Well, actually I asked you that question about how, how many individuals, but you actually went down the path. I was wanting to go down eventually And that was, how are you distributed across the country? So that, that is, that is good news. Well, first of all, ask, how's the program going? You've got the appeal out there. You've been asking for uh, money to support the program and for dogs. How's it been going?
4: You know, I, I, it's been going really, really well people have been so kind and have reached out with donations with um, support in various ways volunteering and so on it's it's been going really well you know we always say we, CNIB guide dogs is it's a it's a people we're in the people business not the dog business mm-hmm. as cute and cuddly as the dogs are they are a They are a support to a person who's blind. So the dog without a person is just a dog. Yeah. And uh, lovely and cuddly and cute, yes, but it's still just a dog. The magic occurs when we partner up and we do the match between the dog and the human. And that is when the independence, the freedom, the improved quality of life, all of that occurs when I talk to guide dog handlers, this experience of getting a dog is, is transformational. I mean, I, I'm a guide dog handler. It was transformational in my life, and I know that it's transformational in a lot of other people's lives. So people have come out very strong in support and understand the importance to people to people's freedom and, and independence. It's been, it's been wonderful.
1: Dogs with jobs, but that's that human that human dog bond that, that is so important to us, so many people in so many ways. Guide dogs sort of have been the inspiration for, and the expansion of dogs being used to support humans in so many other ways over recent years. It's it's been quite impressive. But I think everyone who works with a dog and 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 lives with a dog, and especially in 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 your case, and and others who are getting guide dogs for whatever or support dogs for whatever purpose, are being enriched by that uh, symbiotic relationship.
4: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There are things that I you know when i when i look back in my life there's there's sort of a a pre-dog and post-dog life for me and it is it was so different the 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 change was so different and you know anybody who knows me laughs when i tell them that before i got my dog i was i was very insecure and i didn't have much mm. confidence and i was you know i would never say i was shy but i was certainly I was certainly less my, you know, my, my self-confidence for sure. And my self-esteem was much lower. And I used to kind of get on the bus and I'd kind of hide in the corner. Cause I knew everybody kind of looked at that blind person, you know, the blind woman with, with the cane, you know, and it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really felt that the focus was on and maybe not in a negative way, but they still, they focused on the fact that I was blind.
0: With the lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase
2: necessary. BTW, Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
4: Then I got my dog and suddenly nobody cared that I was blind. They didn't care about what I could or couldn't do. What they cared about was look at the pretty dog and look how well behaved <laughs> he is. And the focus went and, and even when they did, I mean, they all still recognized that I couldn't see, but it was look at what that wonderful dog can do to help her do the things she's doing. So it changed from the focus being on me and my disability to the focus being on the dog and my abilities and it completely transformed my world. And I I went back to school and I got degrees and I got jobs and, you know, and it really just without like I I really say that without my dog, I certainly wouldn't be the person I am today.
1: Those people are looking along that bus at a beautiful partnership that inspires warmth in, in all of us and, and hope in all of us. How can people Help your organization help you with these dogs. You
4: know, there's several things that people can do. You know, they can go to cnibguidedogs.ca mm-hmm. and help by donating. Becoming a monthly donor is very helpful to us. It helps us to maintain what we need to to, to keep the program running and provide these fantastic animals to to their um, with their handlers they could volunteer as puppy raisers and again cnnbguidedogs.ca they can go on there and find the information to become to become puppy raisers and and the other thing that they can do is help to support people who are guide dog handlers out in the community by watching to make sure that they're supporting access you know the dog is great having the dog is great but unless we have the the access rights to go into restaurants and stores and taxis and and you know different facilities even though legally we have that right still today on a regular basis we get refused access into those places so you know if somebody owns a business or or uh, runs a business making sure that the staff are aware that this is a right and also maybe if you see it happening not just sit by and watch, support the person and help to uh, spread the word that this definitely is a right and that people with guide dogs need those dogs to get into places.
1: Well, that's a very, very good point. And that's something everyone can do. If you're in a public place and you see a a clerk or a a wait staff who may not know that their people are legally allowed to bring their support dogs into the guide dogs, into the, into the facility, just speak up and and just back up, provide another opinion uh, that that supports the point of view of the person with the dog and help them get in and spend a few minutes and, and, and be, and be gentle about it. for the most part, this isn't willful opposition. It is simply people who don't know better.
4: Yeah. Lack of education. Lack of education. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So employers out there, by the way, make sure your staff are aware of this. Make sure people are trained and aware of the legislation that allows people to bring their guide dogs into all of our environments, and uh, that would be a big help. So, thank you for that.
4: Yeah, we do have resources on our website as well for businesses to uh, learn about the laws and the rights of individuals who use guide and guide dogs. And we okay. have stickers that we can send to businesses that they can put in their windows and doors that just say "Guide Dogs Welcome."
1: I think when people see those, that really spreads the word and yeah, exactly. uh, and, and and helps.
4: In North America, the first guide dog school in North America was in the States in 1929. Wow. It was the first sort of official school that's sort of known as it was the seeing eye as the uh, sort of the founding organization of guide dog programs. I mean, there was people that trained dogs prior to that individually and so on. But the first school was established in 1929 by Morris Frank in, in New Jersey well it's now in new jersey it was somewhere else at the time but they they moved it to new jersey and since then they've been working on these laws and in in canada these these laws have been in place for decades yes like decades and yet i still get refused in taxis and ubers and restaurants and and it's just sometimes it's very frustrating because my life is based on being able to get around like if when I get to a place if I get to a store and they say well you can come in but we need you to leave your dog outside and I'm like but but you've just completely defeated the purpose of me having this dog right this isn't a pet they're specially trained and I say often that my dog is probably better behaved than the majority of customers that they get in there anyways
1: having been a waiter at one time in my life I, I know that to be true
4: Yeah, so and it, and then there's other places, you know, I I was out for dinner on on Friday evening and did not take the dog. uh, Because of puppy, I wanted to leave my my guide dog at home and I was with family. So I had a guide, but went to the restaurant got in and I'm used to not being recognized without my dog.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. It's like people see
4: me and they go, There's Diane because they see the dog. And so I was quite happily surprised when the when the waitstaff uh, wait staff came over and said, Oh, where's the dog tonight? We miss her.
3: Aww,
4: <laughs> I, I thought, like oh yay, A, they recognized me without the dog. That was exciting. Yes. And B, they were looking for my dog. It's always nice to know that because then that to me means that my dog is behaving the way she should be. And honestly, the number of times we've been in restaurants and sometimes some pretty you know, fancy restaurants yes. and we get up from the table to walk away, the dog crawls out from under the table and everybody around us is shocked. They didn't know they've been sitting there for an hour and a half eating around us and they didn't know that there was a dog under the table. I mean, that's how quiet they are. To me, it, the, there's no excuse for not providing access these days. It's yeah. it's it, this is this is a law. These are laws. they they should be known by now. But yeah. we still yeah. try to educate.
1: <laughs> right. We well, thank you that. very much. Oh, an honor and a pleasure. You know where to find me, Diane. And be well and great success. Fanning the dog pool.
4: International Guide Dog Day is at the end of April, and that's the day we also hold our graduation ceremony oh. for our our class of it'll be class of 2022. We will be doing it virtually. There'll be we we'll, we always put it up on on a link on our YouTube page and so on. So we'll we'll make sure that you you are provided information for that day and and an, and a link to the uh, to the graduation ceremony as well.
1: I would like that very much. And so I, I my co-host is a, a veterinarian, Tiffany Rennick, and uh, we would we would both enjoy that. Very, very awesome. much. So good. We'll put all this up on our Facebook page as a resource for people. And also in the future, Diane, if you have an interesting story or you have a challenge that you'd like to talk to us about, we would be honored to have you and your organization back on the show again to to help you with that.
4: Oh, that would be fantastic. And as I said, right now, monthly donors would really help we're, we're trying our best to get as many dogs in as possible and to get those dogs into the, to the right hands to provide that freedom.
1: If anyone out there ever doubted that dogs could have a profound impact on the world, and I, I, I don't know how one could doubt that at this point in our history, but there's no better example than the relationship and the, the assistance that the dogs provide to people, the freedom that these dogs allow people. And as, as you were saying, Diane, the inspiration and the support it gave for you to feel much more confident about being a part of the world and much less looked upon as someone with a disability instead looked upon as someone who had a, an effective and a wonderful partnership with, with the dog.
4: Mm -hmm, Agreed.
1: I appreciate this very much. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with?
4: I think that, you know, when we're thinking right now of times of COVID and, and uh, the pandemic you know, now's a time when we all need to really support each other in the community. And uh, the other thing I would like to mention is dogs are not trained to understand physical and social distancing. So if you come across somebody with a with a guide dog, please identify where you're standing, let them know because we don't my dog doesn't know what six feet away is. And uh, (laughs) she just she just takes me around obstacles. So You know, we, I would hope that at all times we would be kind to each other in the community, but now more than ever, if you see somebody with a guide dog, please offer assistance and understand that we're not, we're not trying to cut in line. Our dogs don't understand what that is and we don't understand, they don't understand physical distancing. So please provide verbal assistance and and help them out.
1: Very good point. Choose kindness and empathy and the world will be a better place for everyone. And especially coming over the pandemic, when uh, we've all had so many challenges, it's good to be around people again, but be safe, be careful. I wanted to ask you one more question. I meant to ask Mm -hmm. you earlier, what are the dominant breed in the business?
4: So CNIB Guide Dogs uses golden retrievers, Labrador retrievers and crosses of those two. Okay. Um, There are also shepherds are used by many schools as well as Standard poodles are used for folks with allergies. And then they're even in uh, one of the schools, I believe they're using the Bernese crosses.
1: Oh, okay. So Be- like dogs. Yeah, yeah.
4: Labernese. Yeah, they have Labernese. But primarily you're looking at golden retrievers, Labrador retrievers, and, and the shepherds from some schools. Good. Mm-hmm.
1: Good, good, good. Those are the beautiful animals all. And uh, as someone who has mild dog allergies, if the, if the world was full of guide cats, I'd be in big trouble, but. uh...
4: (laughs) (laughs) They're too, they're too independent. (laughs) What is it they say? Dogs? No. What is it? Dogs have families and cats have staff or something. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's right.
1: Exactly. Uh, I've enjoyed this, Diane. Thank you so much. Again, uh, keep us in mind always happy to hear from you it's a wonderful cause and i and i think there's there's no better relationship to see out there in the community than that with a, a person and their guide dog it's it's a beautiful thing when you see these dogs be helpful be respectful and the world will be a better place for everybody there you go thank you my okay. f- uh, friend uh, nice to meet you
4: you too take care
1: take care bye 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 You've been listening to Diane Bergeron, head of the Guide Dog Campaign at the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Here on the Urban Zoom. my name's Bill McBain with co-host Dr. Tiffany Rennick. We will be back shortly here on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Your region, your voice. Back with loons in a moment.
3: And that he knows he'll get. So I love my dog as much as I love you. But you. And I will always come through
0: Stream us live at Saga960am.ca
3: I love my dog As much as I love for you For you may think My dog will always come through. Welcome back to the Urban Zoo. Zoo.
1: It is always excited by coming back to the animal of the week, the breed of the week. This week, it is is the iconic, the mystical almost in terms of its impact on our consciousness the loon. hasn't laid awake at the cottage and heard that plaintive sound out on the lake and been moved by it it is the quintessential canadian summer summer sound there are a number of others like uh beer bottles breaking in parking lots but anyway that's a that's
0: <laughs> not that's nearly a, as peaceful that, that's as yeah the that's
1: that's that's another sound the subtle crackling of a fire of roasting of marshmallows uh, the back bacon in the uh, Canadian bacon for our American audience, Canadian bacon in the frying pan and the gentle howl of a, of a wolf or a dog in the distance. All these are good Canadian sounds and I wouldn't, wouldn't want to be anywhere but near them. The wolves at a distance, of course. Wolves at a distance, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, yes, you know. I, I have many, many fond memories of my family would camp a lot up in Algonquin in the summer, especially those August mornings where it's crisp and cool
3: mm-hmm. and there's
0: a mist over the lake and you just wake up as the sun is rising. My dad and I are very early morning people. So we were the crazy people that are waking up as the sun is rising. And we would go and we would sit out and watch the sun rise with the mist over the lake. And you just you don't see them, but you can just hear these loons echoing across oh, the lake. And there's just, it is magic. It, it has this like peace and calm to it that is just lovely. And so I thought it would be great to talk about these guys. You know, we're not in summer, next. but why not talk?
1: About well, them? we're already looking forward to the next one. So this is perfect.
0: Yeah, exactly. It got cold and there's a few frosts and everybody's dreaming about next summer already. So the loon is found in North America and northern parts of Europe. As Bill said, they are kind of the quintessential summer sound in Canada. And the loony, you've got a loon on the loony. And so they are are a Canadian symbol. They're about the size of a large duck or a small goose. And they are a relative of the cormorant. And Bill had done an interview fairly early on on cormorants. cormorants. And so they are a relative of the cormorant. And anyone who has seen a loon is familiar with their very characteristic coloring. They have the black and white checkered patterned back and wings with the white belly and they've got gray on their head. And I think everybody has seen the picture of the parents just sitting, floating along with the little fuzzy chicks tucked into their wings as they go across the lake. And that is just one of my favorite pictures of of loons. These guys are excellent swimmers, obviously. They have the webbed feet. There are some species of geese and, and ducks that have slightly different webbing. And so these guys are very, very strong swimmers. But one interesting fact that I discovered is that their feet are actually and their le- legs are located fairly far back on back their the body bodies. compared to many of the other duck and goose species, which makes it really difficult for them to walk on land. So they are capable of walking, but they are far less agile.
1: But they are projectile underwater. They're, they're, those, they they are those. It's like having propellers at the back. And they really move through the water because of the the way those feet are placed right. on their bodies.
0: Exactly, and so they are known for their diving. And again, if anybody has sat out in a lake and watched loons, they just dive right down. They're like torpedoes when they get their beaks pointed out, and they find their prey by sight. And so this is important. You will find loons tending to prefer clear lakes as compared to some of the more uh, muddy bottomed lakes, because it makes it easier for them to actually locate their prey. They primarily feed on fish, but they will eat amphibians, frogs, leeches, crustaceans, little crayfish, things like that. And they'll feed on some marine plant life, but it is predominantly fish that they will feed. Mm-hmm. And they they have that really long pointy beak and they will go down and actually kind of spear and grab their prey. And they actually swallow whole. So they tend to try and- Do they and, really? Okay. They do. Yep. So they swallow their, their food whole. They will try to navigate it. So it goes head first and goes straight down. And then they have lots of Things like rocks and pellets in their gullet to try and grind things up. Birds have a very different way of digesting their food than mammals. So these guys will mate predominantly in the spring and then they will nest over the summer and incubate their eggs for about 28 days before the chicks hatch. It's interesting that the male typically is the one who chooses the site for the nest. And this becomes a a pattern for them where they tend to go back to similar places and the males actually will create these territorial spaces on lakes. There's often only in a bigger lake with a few different bays and things, They'll there'll be a few pairs on the lake. In the smaller lakes, they usually, they're quite territorial and will only have one, maybe two pairs yeah. on the lake. So and, real estate
1: values for loons are just out of this world out of this world they own a whole lake yep Yep. yeah
0: and both the male and the female actually build the nest and will incubate the eggs together and then they tend to be both very active in raising the chicks you will often see loons in pairs with their little Mm -hmm. chicks floating the chicks will typically be born what they call precocial. So independent and able to pretty much function. And we see that a lot in many mammal species. So horses, cows, they will be born. They're down on the ground for a very short period of time before they're up on their feet and moving. These little guys are born able to swim and dive right away, right from birth or right from hatching. And they will often in the first few weeks ride on their parents' back as a way to conserve energy so that they can grow and develop the way that they need to. And in the first four to six weeks or so, the parents will feed the the chicks, which is similar to birds that feed, they'll eat, they'll kind of regurgitate yeah. for the babies. And then by about six to 12, or sorry, 10 to 12 weeks, these little guys will start to hunt on their own, fly, and be a lot more independent. They have a lifespan of around 15 to 30 years, which I didn't realize that they that's so long. Pretty solid. Yeah. For some of, I mean, obviously predation is an issue, but yeah, for the but most part in the wild, these guys can live for quite some time.
1: And not spending a whole lot of time on land. They probably do pretty well.
0: Yes, I think they do. We actually had a snapping turtle come up when we were camping a couple of years ago. And we were all sitting out on this rock that was slanted into the water. And we were sitting there and my friend looks down and there's a snapping turtle with its mouth open right beside her toe.
1: Time to move. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. time to
0: move pretty quickly, but it sat there for hours and we just sat there staring at it.
1: Their jaw pressure is something else I'm told. So good to avoid that one. Th- these are just they're wonderful. We had a uh, we rented a small cottage one time that was out over the lake and it was really small. Uh, it was all one room. Uh, it wasn't a whole lot bigger than a pull out, the pullout bed, but it had a little porch and it was out over the water and there was a nest underneath. And it was these guys, I'm guessing, because they were there all the time. Up close and personal, they make a fair noise. It just loved it. Just loved it. Yeah. I'm always looking for, for loons on the lakes. When I'm out there and they just make me feel better about the universe.
0: They do. There's something, there's certain sounds and things in your life that just have this intense therapeutic
4: yeah,
0: vibe evo- in your soul. <laughs> and for quite me, loons are one of these.
1: Yeah, quite evocative. They are one of those. Gets into your soul. I like mm-hmm. that. There's it does.
0: M- that sound, there's just you hear it and there's just something that happens deep in your soul, and you're just like, ah.
1: Maybe you have a poet's soul. I think that's one. about all I've got because <laughs> that, okay? that that works for me well you're a polymath come on I uh, uh there's a lot going on there my my friend but they're beautiful and yeah. summer would not be the same without them agreed do you know anything about their health status or major illness profiles I didn't or find
0: a lot I'm not aware of a lot either no uh, I mean, I'm sure there is stuff out there. I know there's a few universities that have been doing a lot of studying on them, but uh, at this point I couldn't find a whole lot.
1: And what is their endangered status? Are they pretty healthy?
0: Also not something that was commented on in much that, detail. That so I'm assuming they, it's they, they not. Are, yeah, they because are, pretty yeah. much every other species that we've looked at that is on an endangered or like critically endangered list, it's mentioned in every website that i look at
1: that's right and if loon and of course i i have not had a problem finding loons in recent years anytime i've gone gone to a lake so i'm assuming that they're fairly healthy let that continue i imagine they have some challenges in, in some areas though as always we want to be very cognizant about respecting the space and not stressing these birds particularly when they're in mating season or raising their young and also do all we can to maintain the environment that they thrive in.
0: One website that just says, while not endangered yet, Bird Studies Canada says that reproduction rates are decreasing.
1: Oh dear, that is worrisome. That but is worrisome. That is
0: the only comment I can find.
1: That's still significant with the plethora of things and much more endangered. That that caution maybe not standing out in the crowd for people, but I, I think it should once fertility rates start to drop then you're going to have a problem. Yeah. Doesn't take long. We can do better. I think we say that every week. We can do we better. Do.
0: I think we yeah, can do better. We
1: can do better. My friend, thank you for this as always. It's something I look forward to. The week would not be complete uh, without this segment just like a summer would not be complete without the sound of the loon in the distance and seeing them out on the lake. That's the Urban Zoo for this week. We'll be back Tuesdays at 3 p.m. each and every week. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at saga960am.ca slash podcasts and on Facebook at The Urban Zoo with Bill McBain and Dr. Tiffany Rennick. And we would love to hear from you, so drop us a line at The Urban Zoo. At saga960am.ca. That's the Urban Zoo. At saga960am.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, on behalf of myself, Bill McBain, Dr. Tiffany Rennick, and producer Alison Bambury, stay safe, have a great week, and we will meet you next week on the Urban Zoo.
3: My dog will always come through.
0: No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.